but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. This is the final episode of 2018. Can you believe it? At long last... I'm ready for it. Yes, for our two and a half week hiatus. <laughs> Unless some other big news pops off that requires an emergency episode. Uh-huh. We may have to pry ourselves away from the Christmas dinner table. <laughs> so this is our ATP wrap, obviously. It's going to follow a very similar structure to last week with one big detour for the Justin Gimmelstab fiasco that's currently ongoing. Mm -hmm. Since we're following the same template as the previous year-end show for the woman, we're going to start with a recap of some of the winners, the major winners, not just at slams, but of the bigger events on tour. And then we're going to talk about some of uh, the biggest movers in the rankings, one way or another, up or down. And so at the Grand Slam level, we had three winners this year, and there are three familiar names. Last year, Federer and Nadal alternated slams. And this year, they each won another title. Fed in Australia, Rafa at the French Open. So they'd won the previous six to that point. And then the resurgence of Novak Djokovic happened, which was one of the big stories of the earth, well, the entire season in two halves. The first half being, where is Novak Djokovic? And then the second half being, well, damn, he's been found. Mm -hmm. And looking at these these winners, it's kind of ho-hum. Yes, fine, those three won the slams. But take it all the way back to 2005. I knew this, but I was still shocked by just how few men have won slam titles in the last 14 years. Mm -hmm. 56 slams, and the only ones who've won, I think, starting 2005, Marat Safin. Think how far back that is. Marat Safin in 2005. Andy Murray's won his three, Stan Wawrinka's won his three, Chilich and Del Potro. I believe that's it. Am I missing somebody? The rest of them have been all Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I suppose you can look at some of the finalists as minor surprises. So we had Dominic Team at Roland Garros, who is routinely, you know, maybe the third or fourth best clay court player in the world. Kevin Anderson making his second slam final out of the past four after suffering through that extremely long match against John Isner, which prompted a rule change at Wimbledon. Del Potro in a slam final for the first time since he won in 2009 at the U.S. Open. So the big three is still dominating the majors, but you are starting to see cracks in the 500s, in the Masters 1000s. The points are becoming spread a little more equitably. We're seeing, we're seeing waves of big four, well, big three dominance. It's mm -hmm. like they're passing the baton for little spurts. Right now, Djokovic has the ascendancy. It's yet to be seen how far he will take that into 2019. That said, Rafa didn't really have any dips in 2018. He had injury concerns, but he was there everywhere in 2018. So it's kind of unfair to him to then say, well, you know, he, he only had a little bit of a spurt. He had a damn good season that was kind of curtailed. Right. Could have been a whole lot better. To be fair, he had a retirement in the first major and the final major of the year. He did play his best Wimbledon in many years, reaching the semifinals, playing that 
odd and controversial match under the roof, which turned out to be, in my mind, one of the best matches of the year, if not the, the most exciting. He also won Toronto. He won a Masters 1000 on hardcore. Mm-hmm. I believe it's his fourth uh, Rogers Cup title between Toronto and Montreal. The point being, Rafa is no, it's, he's not a clay court specialist at this stage of his career that a lot of folks had kind of pegged him as at this point or expected him to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. This year was a bit of a, a course reversal, wouldn't you say? Well, I would say that the injuries are very concerning, as always. He didn't play many hardcore tournaments. I think the one hardcore tournament he did play that wasn't a major, he won. But what was your overall point here? You were saying that there, there are more people putting their hand up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Next-gen guys from last year, a few of them have asserted themselves in really big ways throughout the season. Tsitsipas had a breakout season. Chorich beat Federer in Hala. He got to the final against Djokovic in Shanghai. Achanov won his first Masters title in Paris. Like, a bunch of these young guys are coming up a lot faster than I expected. They're not just yet threatening seriously at the majors. It's just that the big three have such a good handle on how to win at the majors. Perhaps it's that difference between playing best of five, winning seven best of five matches as opposed to best of three matches. That That's the part that probably takes a little bit longer to figure out for the young guys. Right. It was a heartening season for Dominic Team. He made the French Open final, which was building yet again. His clay resume was building on the previous two seasons. Mm-hmm. And then he made the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, bageling Rafa in the first set. Do you remember how just ridiculous that first set was? Yeah. It looked like Rafa was dead and buried. And that match turned out to be one of the matches of the year as well. So for him to be able to to score those results when he was kind of in danger of veering toward the lost boy fork in the road, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he's kind of steered it back on course this year. Right. Because the guys of his age, like say team and then a couple years older, maybe Goffin, uh, Pui, like those guys, they'd been established for a few years, but it didn't really seem that that they were necessarily making big enough improvements on these biggest stages. And then these young guys were really nipping on their heels even more so than they were nipping on the big three. Mm-hmm. And they were in danger of being leapfrogged. And so what we saw was improvements from all three tiers, as far as I'm concerned this year. Right, but then there's a fourth tier who has been leapfrogged completely, which is the Songa, Monfils, Gasquet generation. Does that? I didn't mean to mention all French guys, but but does that tier exist anymore? Well, the thing they like they were just swallowed up in the Big Four era. I think they just had the very bad luck of being around the same age or a few years younger than Djokovic, Murray, and Nadal. Team and Goffin and these people have time to play the sport in their prime when the big three is old. And Songa and Monfils didn't have that. But what stopped those guys from becoming part of the upper echelon? I think we know. What do we know? The brain. Is it that simple? (laughs) I mean, a part of it has to do with work ethic as well too right and in some areas like there are a lot of i feel like it's a bit reductive to say that the the biggest difference and the only difference between getting to that federer nadal djokovic level and these other guys is smarts there has to be more to it than that smarts it's like fortitude there's a lot of etc that we can't pinpoint for Mm. sure uh but i i i'd be curious take songa back to 2008 at the Australian Open and give him a do-over. 
mm. if that were to change the trajectory of his career going forward. Right. At the Masters 1000 level, Indian Wells, big, big, big news. Del Potro in one of the matches of the year beats Federer in three tight sets for his first ever it, Masters 1000 was title. Was it one of the matches of the year? That's what people say. I don't really think it was very good. Okay. It was definitely memorable. In Miami, oh dear, John Isner won. I'd totally forgotten about that mm-hmm. part. You did this whole spread. so. Oh, you forgot about You just wiped totally, that from your memory? Yeah, I, I'm shocked now reading it on yeah. air. And he actually won the doubles title at Indian Wells, too. Monte Carlo, Nadal, again. This was part of his undecima tour across Europe. In Madrid, Zverev was your titleist. In Rome and Toronto, Nadal won. And then we've got the uh, the Djokovic swing here from Cincinnati into the U.S. Open and then Shanghai. He won all those three. And then to end the year in Paris, the kind of a etc. Masters 1000, the one where we don't really know what to expect. The one where Jack Sock was your defending champion. Karen Hachanov, he scored his first Masters 1000 title. Think about how long it took Del Potro to win a Masters 1000 and Hachanov at 22 has already gotten it. Mm-hmm. The 500 level is where you see a lot of the non-top, top guys starting to, to put their hand up. So you still have Federer winning. He's winning in, in Rotterdam. He's winning again in Basel. Nadal is winning in Barcelona. Those are the areas that you, you kind of expect. If those guys show up to those 500 events, especially Rafa and Clay, they're going to win those. But then you've got Diego Schwartzman winning in Rio. Bautista Agut, who had a fairly quiet year. Had a big win earlier on in Dubai. Acapulco, Del Potro, strong, strong start to his year, winning in Indian Wells and then also in Acapulco. Hala, Chorch, that was the event where he beat Federer in the final, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. That was the first Chorch uprising of the year. Queens, Marin Cilic. What can you say about Marin Cilic at this point? Like he's He makes the Australian Open final. He wins these tournaments consistently top five. Wins the final Davis Cup. He's there or thereabouts always. I kind of feel like he is the current Burdick. Have I said that before? Probably. And is that unfair to him? It is because Marin has a major. Okay, and I feel like you said that the last time. But take away the slam if we were. Mm-hmm. I mean, the slam is like almost five years ago now. I'm talking about like year in Europe. Burdick was that guy who was kind of unassuming top 10 guy, kind of quiet, go about his business, could really beat anybody in any given day, potentially. But had the weapons. Did. In that regard, you're saying Chilich is more dangerous? Yes, much more. Basilashvili in his amazing kit. Simple, brilliant black and white kit. Winning Hamburg. Washington, Zverev defended. Uh, Beijing, Basilashvili won again. That's two ATP 500s for him this year. And then at the end of the year, Medvedev in Tokyo and then Kevin Anderson in Vienna. Of those three levels, there was still only a couple wins by the really young guys. We saw a lot of results where they pushed the top guys in big spots. Hachanov against Nadal twice at the slams. Shapovalov's name has been banded about a lot. But the ones who were actually able to score titles this year is Verve. He's been doing it for a little while now. Winning Washington and the World Tour Finals. Big, big title for him there. Medvedev winning Tokyo. And then who else? There were no other... And Hachanov in Paris. Those are the three guys who are able to to win from that younger cluster of players. So there's still some work to be done. Right. Atsitsipas deserves a mention for reaching the final in Toronto in really 
his first full season on the ATP Tour, beating a slew of players, including Djokovic and Zverev, losing to Nadal in the final. I guess in saying that I'm trying to push back a little bit against this narrative that the young guys, the next gen, has arrived. Right. They're close. Yeah, and you're seeing, for the past two years, people have been saying you're seeing cracks in this big four thing. Yourself included, just now, on the show. Yet, the past eight majors have all been won by the big four. Well, and more than that. I find the men's rankings this year, the end of year rankings, so fascinating. Really? Yeah, especially that 11 to 17-ish range. It's just, it's a litany of young guys who are just bubbling under. You could, And I feel like if you were to ask me, you say, Jonathan, who do you think is the one that's going to take that step? I think of all the young guys, maybe even Zverev included, Hachanov is the one that's most well set to do it. I really think there's something special there with him. What else did you notice from, again, just like the last time we're using a help from Tennis Smash, they put out a year-end movers and, and shakers kind of thing in the rankings, and we're looking at their synopsis here, giving you the 2017 year-end rank and then the 2018 year-end rank and the difference up or down. Anything that pops out to you upon first glance? Well, of course, Stefanos Tsitsipas went up 74 ranking spots this year. He didn't even play a full schedule last year, didn't have that many wins on the ATP main tour, and it just seems like he was racking up wins left and right. He had that amazing run in Toronto, like I mentioned. He won his first title. He won next-gen finals. This was one of those breakout years that you can see maybe having a bit of a sophomore slump because there are so many points to defend now. But to go up 74 spots in one year is crazy. There are a lot of of guys with a lot of cachet right now in terms of the moving up the rankings. Tsitsipas is somebody who's talked about a lot. He commands a lot of the tennis discourse, especially on Twitter. There are a lot of folks who have a lot of opinions about Mm. him, for better or worse, think that he's a hipster, that he's full of it. Uh, He seems to have some kind of conflict with some of the other guys on tour. Some guys don't seem to like him. No, the kid has definite anger problems. Like, that became evident throughout the season. He and Medvedev kicked off somewhere. I don't remember where. Mm. Uh, but it's he's a polarizing figure. That's my point. Mm. He's polarizing, and he has a bigger profile than most at this stage of his career, in spite of having done so well in the rankings. You know, I feel like there are right. a lot of other guys who've done well as well that just do not command as much attention. Well, Again, I'll, I'll come back to Hachanov. His... <laughs> His shut-your-fuck-up nemesis, Medvedev, he had a great year as well. He moved up 49 spots. He's in the top 16. But you don't really hear near the amount of chatter about Medvedev as you do about Tsitsipas. No, and I don't know that you will. He has an unconventional game. A lot of people find it ugly. And a lot of people just plain don't like him. He had an awkward, I guess you could say racist, encounter with a lines person similar to the Leighton Hewitt episode years ago with James Blake, alleging that there were you know there was some collusion between a player and an umpire of the same race. Not dissimilar to what we talked about with Sibylkova and Shea, that incident right. at Wimbledon, along those lines. But Medvedev won three titles this year. One of them was a five hundred. The kid had, I think, the second most wins on hard courts for the year. Like Tsitsipas, Denis Shapovalov 
is one of the young guys who gets some of the most ink and is talked about the most. He moved up 24 spots from number 51 and finished the year at number 27 without really having a bust out moment. He didn't have, he made what, the Madrid semifinals, but he didn't really have a Toronto finals like Tsitsipas did or to win a smaller event or to finish the year with the next gen finals title. I don't know that his achievements to date have matched the hype. Right, he didn't have a moment like he did in 20, what was it, 17, when he beat Rafa at his home tournament in Montreal. I think this was kind of a building year. It was a pretty good year by most standards. It's just that, you're right, his press and some of the adulation that goes around by members of the press is a little bit heightened for where he is in his career now. I think he has amazing potential, but he's very young. The other young guy who's gotten a lot of talk is Alex Diminar. And uh, a lot of that is wonderment, I feel. <laughs> Bemusement at him being able to achieve so much with such a slight frame. Mm. Beaten finalist at the next-gen finals, losing to Tsitsipas. He came out of nowhere at the start of the year. He jumped 177 spots from number 208 to finish at number 31, with his highlight being a DC final. Mm-hmm. But I think the real highlight of his year has to be that US Open match against Marin Cilic late late at night otherwise you just have a lot of similarly young guys who are flying under the radar like i said with medvedev there's also kyle edmund Mm -hmm. nobody's talking about kyle edmund but he's up to number 14 kyle edmund is ranked number 14 you be honest with yourself at home (laughs) and tell me if you knew this if this surprises you borna chorich he started the year at number 48 up 36 to number 12 somebody who promised a lot a few years ago and kind of regressed a bit had injury issues and came back full force in 2018 and really kind of elevated his status in at least our eye well let me speak for myself in my perspective elevated himself to being a legit slam contender potentially as opposed to maybe kind of bautista go top 10 adjacent Mm. but he's got serious skills and then the other young guy that's going under the radar that, that a lot of folks don't talk about is Francis Tiafoe. He's one of the few Americans who won titles this year on the men's tour. He won in Delray Beach, up 40 spots to number 39. And we should mention that Michael Moe reached the top 100 for the first time this year. As did Riley Opelka. And, yes. Players who had precipitous falls in the rankings. I know some folks were like, why are you talking about all this bad shit? <laughs> you know why are you being so negative but it, it is who said that some folks did a lot of this was due to injuries so we don't want to show off too much schadenfreude here dimitrov was not injury related there were some i mean this is sort of what you expect from dimitrov at this point i was surprised that he had dropped as low as number 19 since he finished the previous season winning the world tour finals was in the top three but he had uh just a really thoroughly unimpressive season see i thought that it was worse than it actually was when i look and see that he's at number 19 right and i was like oh there's it's not that bad there's a way forward (laughs) because well the way i conceive of his year was that it was atrocious relative to some of the more precipitous collapses like jack sock it uh, it wasn't that bad jack sock is another one who clearly wasn't injury related because he is one of the most successful doubles players out there at the moment 
dropped to number 106. Gerald Donaldson, after his supervisor tantrum on clay, barely won a match for the rest of the year, finished at 111. And some of the more heartbreaking ones for me, Joe Wilfried Songa is at 259. Due to injuries, he didn't play for most of the year. Andrew Murray is at 260 right now. Again, is trying to rebuild his career after this hip surgery. Stan Wawrinka finished last year at number 9, finishes this year at number 66. Somebody also who took months off to rehab from injury and uh, showed up in Toronto and played a hell of a match against Rafa Nadal. Mm -hmm. I think two tie breaks. Or 7-5, 7-6, something like that. But the, the road back for him doesn't look as bleak as it did at one point because his first few events back did not look good no i mean he gave, came back from knee surgery and decided to play a very light schedule and then packed it in pretty early donald young fell 216 spots to number 277 wow yeah he and ryan harrison had that very ugly dust up at the inaugural new york open in long island back in i think february what, february yeah and he did not play well since, and neither did Ryan. Tomasz Berdyk, injured, hasn't played in a while. Started the year by making the Australian Open quarterfinals. Things looked a little bit brighter for him then, and uh, did not go well due to injury afterward. Dropping 52 spots to number 71. Sam Query, who finished last year at number 13, is all the way down to number 51. And Pablito, Pablo Carreño Busta, finished top 10 last year. He's down to number 23. You can breathe a sigh of relief because we're we're done with the the recapping of the results part of the show. It was like pulling teeth to get you through it. Or you're talking to me. Talking to you, James. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're going to start this segment where we deal with the controversial moments on the ATP tour. I don't want to say that the ATP was more controversial than the WTA this year because we documented a fair few on the women's side last week. But we did have uh, like a lot of men behaving badly in men's tennis this year, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, but I also don't want to lump the Gimmel Stop thing in with the rest. A lot of the rest is sort of petty squabbles and stuff. The Gimmel Stop is something very serious that cuts to the heart of this sport. Sure, which is why we're going to deal with that right off the Mm -hmm. bat and then move into some of the stuff that we can treat with a little bit more levity. Right. So what had happened? Well, Justin Gimmelstab is somebody that we've talked about on this podcast for years now. We've documented his past transgressions at length, and we've lamented the fact that he's been allowed to make his way up the ladder in tennis in spite of all the things that should have kept him out of the sport to this point. Can you walk us through a little bit where we're at at the moment? So the tennis world has been abuzz or silent, depending on who you are, about what recently happened with Gimmelstab. He was arrested on Halloween on suspicion of felony battery for allegedly beating up a former friend of his who apparently had some contact with his estranged wife. He approached this gentleman in... LA on Halloween night, Justin was dressed as a Top Gun pilot, that was his costume, and the victim, the alleged victim, claims that Justin hit him 50 times in front of his wife and child. So he's arrested, he's been charged with a felony, that's where we are at the moment. 
In 2016, Justin's estranged wife and another friend both filed restraining orders against him alleging assault. He, in turn, filed restraining orders against those two people. We have now Simon Briggs of The Telegraph reporting about this paddle tournament in 2017 that Gimmelstab was participating in that apparently descended into near violence. It resulted in Gimmelstab threatening a fellow player, calling him the F-word. And his alleged use of the F-word was so casual as a means of demeaning and questioning this man's masculinity. Mm -hmm. The kind of high school bullshit that a grown man, it's just galling and shocking, would resort to this in that moment. Right, but the kind of behavior and language that we know is still supported and tolerated by a lot of people in sports. Most simply look the other way. That's how boys are. That's how they behave. Boys will be boys, Mm -hmm. that nonsense. And we've talked a lot on this show about how other sports have made great strides in the promotion and the welcoming of LGBT athletes. And tennis, in particular on the men's tour, has lagged way behind. It's something that we attempted to address earlier in the year. We did our Pride episode. Uh, We asked Federer about the reasons why there haven't been openly gay players on the ATP tour. And this kind of thing is likely at the core of it because it's not something that's addressed, talked about. It's not something that's met with resistance. There's a culture of silence, obviously, Mm -hmm. surrounding this kind of behavior that would, you know, signal to folks who would otherwise want to come out that you're not quite at the moment in tennis history yet for it to be safe for you to do so. Right. This isn't the first time that Gimmelstab has made homophobic utterances in public. He's also made, as we've talked about, and I'm sure everyone has heard at this point, shockingly misogynistic and violent comments about Anna Kornikova back in, I think it was 2008, on a radio show. So it wasn't a, a private conversation. It was something he knew would be heard. And it didn't occur to him that it would be a problem. What's important to remember, rehashing that, incident is that he had already been elected to the ATP council at that point. Mm -hmm. He was a representative of the players at that point. He was commentating. He was a former player. He he was on the come up to where he is now. You know, this is not something that happened way, way back in the day. Oh, I know I tweeted this when I was 14. This isn't a deleted tweet. No, this was a 31 year old who was already very much entrenched in tennis who just went off. In a way that should have been, even in 2008, the end of it. Yes, it should have been disqualifying. And to be precise, we want to revisit those words because they're important. Because our take on Gimmelstab this entire time is that he shouldn't be there in the first place. So regardless of what has happened this time, a lot of folks are saying, well, let's see what happens. You know, let's see this play out. I don't necessarily need to see this play out. Because I know what has happened before that should have already been disqualified. Back in 2008, he was scheduled to be playing an exhibition, a doubles exhibition against Kornikova in a couple months. And he was on this radio show and he said that he didn't want to use the word hate. It's a very strong word, but it's it's very close to hate what he feels for her. And he said that he wants to hit her hard in the midriff when when serving at her. If she's not crying by the time she walks off the court, then I did not do my job. He was then asked if he would ever have an affair with her. I mean, that question. That question. (laughs) Like, the entitlement of this 
questioner, right? Mm -hmm. To to even to basically auction off yeah, this woman. To even hypothetically ask this question, it's it's alarming. And Gimelstab responded, definitely not. He would not have an affair with Anna Kornikova. And the reason being, he has no attraction to her. She has a great body, but her face is a five. And not only will I not have an affair with Anna Kornikova, but you know what? I wouldn't mind having my younger brother, who's kind of a stud, nail her and then reap the benefits of that. That is where this veers into serious rape culture. Right. I, I just can't imagine what else that could possibly mean. I don't want to dwell too much on this because we have covered this in the past. Yeah, but it is important in in understanding why this is not just a step too far. This is something that's already been many steps too far. Mm -hmm. This this whole business of nailing her and then reaping the benefits of that, that is... What does that mean? It is... What is that? I don't... It, it's frat culture, mm -hmm. rape culture, the intersection of the two. It is so alarming. Every time I read it, I get so enraged that this was not disqualifying. Right. So he issued this apology saying he was extremely disappointed in himself. He showed disrespect for women and he was punished by being suspended by a game or one match from World Team Tennis. Like, are you serious? World Team Tennis. He lost his column that he had just started with SI. He had allegedly lost a couple of endorsements as well. At 31 mm -hmm. and a former professional, I don't know what those endorsements would have been. But the main part of that is he was still allowed to continue as a commentator. And swiftly moved up the ladder at Tennis Channel and ATP. Mm -hmm. So now we're in 2018 and he is assumed the heir apparent to Chris Kermode, who is the chairman and CEO of the ATP. He's expected to take over the role. That, that surprised me. Yeah. I didn't quite know how much this had escalated. Because Simon Briggs kind of just casually dropped that in there. Right. As the heir apparent to Chris Kermode. And so that's where you get, you know, these homophobic and misogynistic comments that have built up through the years. The accusations of violence against women and men. Now this man is so entrenched in tennis, in both broadcasting and the administration of worldwide men's tennis, that people are afraid to speak out. And it's creating this culture of silence. And like you said, if someone were to come out in men's tennis, what would be the atmosphere? Would he be welcomed? Would she be welcomed? And these are sort of the not so subtle indicators that the tennis leadership gives out that no, this is not welcomed. It is not safe. And we will not make it a priority to have your safety at the top of our list going forward, should you do so. Because Again, one of the things I've always wondered is what happens when a player comes out and he goes to play in countries that are not LGBT friendly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have like, somebody like Gimmelstab at the head of the ATP board running the ATP, what is his priority with regards to LGBT safety in some of these countries? If a player were to try and address that, right. how do we have any confidence that this is something that will be taken seriously when these are things that are now known unmistakably? So back to the present day, the ATP Players Council was set to hold a conference call this past week about the Gimelstab situation. Novak Djokovic is currently the president. He is a very outspoken political ATP Council president. He's been instrumental in organizing. He has indicated that he might be in favor of unionization. He's a, a pretty bold figure politically 
in men's tennis as far as the top tennis players go. We haven't heard anything really about how that conference call went. If there's going to be a vote on whether or not to keep Justin in, it should be mentioned that John Isner and Sam Query are both on the ATP Players Council. Isner is uh, Gimmelstab's pupil and close friend. How, I cannot how about imagine that? that, you know, in any normal situation, Isner would have to recuse himself, even from commenting, let alone voting. Well, we've already heard his comments. Right. He's issued a statement saying that, well, let's wait and see kind of thing, right? Isner brought up that unfortunate situation with Leighton Hewitt years ago when he played James Blake and insinuated that a black lines person was siding with Blake because they were both black. Mm -hmm. Remember this? God, this comes up a lot in tennis, doesn't it? This sort of racial collusion. It was a very ugly incident, and we're not here to downplay that at all. Hewitt is not... Uh, the most virtuous figure in tennis. He's not the moral authority. No. What he did do was spoke out and said, we don't want someone like Gimmelstab as the face of our organization. Isner hit right on that, brought up the incident from, I think it was 2004, and said, oh, well, look at you. Look at what you did. You're not exactly the moral authority. So it's a big mess. Isner suddenly cares about something he has never cared about before. He's indicated before that he doesn't believe racism really exists. Apparently he does now. So I, I can expect a lot of talk about systemic racism and... Uh, oh, is that on the agenda? Yeah, is that, but that's what's coming from Isner, I, I imagine, <laughs> because he's been enlightened, right? But the you cannot have a more clear-cut case of a conflict of interest. Isner is coached by Gimmelstab, and they're both on the Players' Council. And now, presumably, if he doesn't recuse himself... Isner has a say in whether Gimmelstab gets to stay or go. Right. That is absurd. That is the height of absurdity. But it is very in keeping with how tennis governance is structured. Yes. Just a, a little note about what's the council, what's the board of directors. So the ATP board of directors has six members. Three of them are appointed by tournaments and three of them are appointed by players. Gimmelstab is one of those three who is appointed by players as their representative on the ATP board of directors. The Players' Council is elected by the players themselves. Novak Djokovic is currently the president. I believe there are 10 members total. Those are the people who will be voting whether or not they'd like to keep Gimmelstop as their representative to the ATP board of directors. Now, very recently, this is interesting, the Players' Council voted to fire Roger Rashid as one of their player representatives on the ATP board. And the reason they did this is because Rashid voted in favor of this one-year plan to increase prize money. And they felt that him voting for the one-year plan was kind of selling them short. He, was, he wasn't pushing for more fundamental changes in distribution of prize money. They voted to oust him, and it was, it was pretty quick and easy. So I'm... So much so that most folks didn't even hear about it. No. I mean, the British press is really the only people reporting on these sort of ATP squabbles, these political squabbles inside the organization. A lot of people are interested in seeing, well, what's going to happen if it was that easy to oust Roger Rashid, who is a very respected member of the kind of international tennis community. People view him as a, a straight shooter, like a, a non-bullshitter. Right? And former coach of Leighton Hewitt. Right. right. And so there's this other aspect where folks think that Leighton Hewitt is only speaking about this because he's their 
as an attack dog now because of what happened to his buddy. Mm-hmm. There are all these moving parts of conflicts. <laughs> right. And speaking of conflicts, Roger Rashid has been replaced on the ATP Board of Directors by who? The Senior Vice President of Tennis Channel. Imagine that the players have elected, supposedly, David Edges, who is the SVP of Tennis Channel, as their representative to the ATP Board of Directors. I mean, you literally cannot make this shit up. The conflicts are deep. They are fundamental to this sport. They're part of its lifeblood. The senior vice president of Tennis Channel, for which Justin Gimmelstub works. Imagine that. Uh, the leadership of Tennis Channel is supposed to advocate for the players on the ATB board of directors. I, I just don't understand how this works. And then we have hat tip to Anna Marseille, who pointed this out on Twitter. Ken Solomon, who is the president of Tennis Channel, his Twitter banner, for what it's worth, his Twitter header, is a picture of himself and Justin Gimmelstop <laughs> on air. Still, yeah, this may have yeah. predated the latest drama, but mm. still, that's what his Twitter header is. Right. We, on the show, very recently talked about conflicts of interest. We did a good half hour on it and how conflicts kind of create the conditions for corruption and for rot. And this is what you're seeing now very clearly. We couldn't have picked a better illustration of conflicts of interest and why they're problematic. One of the big reasons they're a problem is because they create conditions in which people cannot speak. They either will not or cannot speak for fear of their careers. That's what you're seeing now. So when people decry the silence among tennis journalists and among people who work for Tennis Channel, that's what you're seeing. And it's what you've seen in every industry that has been affected by the Me Too movement in the past year and a half. Every single industry has the same story. A lot of people find this behavior objectionable, but instead of speaking up, they have just distanced themselves. And that's it. And that's what you're seeing now. I'm sure behind the scenes there are a lot of journalists, a lot of executives and administrators who work for these organizations who are disgusted, but where are they? They're terrified for their jobs. Because the conflicts of interests, it works twofold. They prop people up when they shouldn't. And they also, like you said, allow them to remain because other people can't say anything. Mm-hmm. Right? It works in two ways. So at this point, you have this from the outside. Because not many people are speaking out, you have this appearance that the people inside are complacent and they approve of what's happening. Complicit. They, exactly. Complacent and complicit. That they agree with what Gimmelstab has done, that they're not morally offended by anything that goes on because all we get is stonewalling. Simon Briggs is one of the only reporters who've reported on this at all. Jerry Nathan from Deadspin as well. John Wertheim addressed this in his latest mailbag and man. It's it's like all of Tennis Twitter was waiting on this mailbag because as soon as it popped up, there were comments going off in every direction for like the next half Mm -hmm. an hour. And nobody could have been surprised by his response at this point. Especially now that Wertheim works for Tennis Channel and Sports Illustrated. I'm interested behind the scenes what Tennis Channel employees are being asked not to say. Because if they were asked to be silent, that's understandable. And I wish someone would just come out and say it. I'm not talking because I literally cannot say anything. Wertheim invoked 
this idea that he is friends with Justin on a personal level, which prevents him from judging too harshly. It also sort of clouds his view of the whole situation and that due process should simply take its course. And so that's the, I was surprised that someone as smart and careful as Wertheim invoked the phrase due process because it's taken on such a horrible connotation over the past year. And I want to ask, where was a due process back in 2008? Right. I don't think due process took place back then. I may be in the minority. There are folks, I'm sure, who think that this is a witch hunt, that he made a mistake, that we should let this go. No, but people who use the word due process only think in terms of criminality. So because what he said in 2008 wasn't illegal, there's there's nothing to prosecute, right? Now people can hide behind this criminal proceeding. To, they can reserve judgment until we know what's going on in court. But like we said, that's not really what we're concerned about. I'm not interested in Dustin Gimmelstab's personal life, the, the problems he has with some man who's been friends with his ex-wife. Like, that is not something that concerns me. His violent outburst, if it did or did not happen, if he's charged with a felony, that's not something that changes my life. Nor my view of him. Right. But the point is, like I think you said before, there are so many things that have happened before then that should have been disqualifying. And so when people say, Justin is my friend, uh, I just want to reserve judgment until this is all over. I just have to say, why? Like, why? Uh, when you say this person is my friend, that's that's seen as the ultimate armor. But can we not question why is this person your friend? You are the company you keep. Or fine, he's your friend. Be his friend and go to his trial. Hold his hand. Call him at night. Assure him everything will be okay. But that doesn't... <laughs> that's not an assurance for us who want and expect better of tennis. Right. And so this, this is the kind of monster that conflicts of interest create. They insulate people from consequences. At this point, Gimmelstab might still be in the running to be the president and CEO of ATP. I have no idea. If the court case, you know, goes away, if there's a settlement, if he's acquitted, do we just go back to normal? I have so little faith in tennis governance that I think, yeah, well, this will probably just blow over. And the fact that whatever pushback he got in 2008 was enough for you does not mean that it's enough for me. And the fact that I don't think it's enough does not make me president of the witch hunt. <laughs> right, or the snowflake club or whatever. Exactly. The, we've, another tenet of this show is that we shouldn't be afraid to expect more from people, especially in tennis. And to say that we should expect more of Gimmelstab in 2008 is not even approaching the surface of it. It was so, so egregious. More than that, I think when you give someone a second chance and they blow it over and over and over, you have to start understanding when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. That old cliche. Like, it wasn't just that one incident, right? He's gotten a third, a fourth, a fifth chance, all this mess going on in his personal life, these restraining orders, these homophobic comments. When somebody shows you who they are, open your eyes. I don't know what else to say. But why is nobody talking about 2008 anymore? It's a side note now. Well, like, think- is it because it predated the Me Too movement? Uh, that's probably part of it. I think also people are afraid to go after someone 
for something they apologized about. It's not something that's alleged. It's something that right. we have his words. There's also this, there's a fantasy floating around that I've noticed that he suffered as a result of those comments. Uh, some of his defenders have said he was punished at the time, so just let it go. But I will counter with the facts. He was not punished. He lost a, a match in World Team Tennis, and he continued up the ranks in both ATP Players Council and Tennis Channel. Where he, where were the consequences? He lost the SI little column he had uh, and a couple oh, endorsements. Okay. Okay. Um, the punishment did not meet the crime. Right. It just did not. And so where I'll end here is we're not in any way concerned with this current issue, if that makes any sense at all. Like, we, I, for one, I'm still so hung up on 2008. <laughs> right. It, it's brought a lot to the surface. And we, we learned some disturbing things that have happened in the past few years that we didn't know about. And the thing that is galling to me is that there are whispers at every tournament. You hear whispers about him. There are folks on Twitter saying that they've experienced witness stuff with him at tournaments, that he was witnessed making a 70-year-old ball man cry on a tennis court. Mm. Like, you hear all these behind-the-scenes stories that paint a picture that are not admissible in court, unless somebody wants to go and testify. Right. <laughs> you know, but this is so much more than either of these individual incidents. Mm. And the thing I go back to is tennis looks dumb you look dumb in a lot of other industries and a lot of other companies they would have dumped this person because it's just bad pr but tennis just digs in and he and others who find themselves in similar positions within tennis folks behave as if they're not replaceable right uh, like so there, there, there were there are many people who are far more qualified mm -hmm. to begin with for the jobs that he had and could easily replace him now mm. Where is the, the outrage for those folks who can't get a crack into tennis because of the nepotism, because of the conflicts of interest, because of the buddy-buddy system, because of the, the old boys club? Right. Where's the outrage for that? You know, we don't have Tennis Channel. I don't know. I've heard Gimmelstop's commentary here and there. Is he the best commentator in the world? Like, is, is he worth the risk is, is what I want to know. I think he is in person probably extremely charismatic very very smart has an elite education and comes from privilege these things i mean all of these things conspire to make him probably irresistible for certain people in in the upper reaches of power right but like where's Zena garrison uh, like where <laughs> you know where are the great players of yesteryear as commentators like you said is he irreplaceable no Nobody, literally no one is irreplaceable. This is how privilege within the system works and protects. Because if you Google Justin Gimmelstab and Brother, you'll get a couple hits. One of them is one of the first articles that came out with this story. Bill Simons, he wrote a, a recap of what was going on. And he said one of the, the attributes of Justin Gimmelstab is that he's very loyal. Loyal to this, loyal to that. He was lauded for his loyal, loyal to, to his brother didn't expound upon what that was uh -huh. but one of the other hits you'll find is that right around the time of him winning the u.s open with venus williams his brother had just gone through a legal ordeal because he had killed a campus cop in a hit and run mm -hmm. and got six months in boot camp yes and probation Rich that was it that was it and that article back then in 1997 or 1998 framed that incident as Justin overcoming adversity 
and framing again with the Bill Simons piece how his loyalty is something to be you know praised with respect to this incident but in fact it's a cloud of privilege that's propped up and force-fed the likes of Gimmelstab down our throats for the past what two decades mm. can I'm you imagine if it was a black guy whose brother had killed somebody and he beat somebody up in the street and he beat up his wife and you know these things wouldn't just dissipate from our perspective as as folks who want a more inclusive open tennis culture and structure we are not the folks for you to look to to find sympathy for justin gimmelstab because we we find him to be part of the problem mm-hmm. like, and also <laughs> if you feel in any way complicit we're not because we've been talking about this for four years and we do not subscribe to tennis channel so that's <laughs> that on that <laughs> other controversies <laughs> Novak Djokovic sparked these rumors of unionization in the ATP in January, ushering some of the leadership out of the Players' Council meeting and meeting with a uh, labor relations lawyer in Australia. We've also heard that Novak has been organizing the Players' Council to argue with the ITF as far as Olympic eligibility because he has no interest in playing for the new Davis Cup, and Olympic eligibility is tied to Davis Cup participation. Again, Novak is one of the most political, outspoken, uh, interesting figures among the very, very top tennis players. And I think this is going to be a really different tenure than Roger Federer's run. How is this framed within controversies? Well, that was a controversy because among some of the more reactionary news outlets, he was roundly trashed for that unionization push and, and misunderstood. And we covered this on episode 109. It was something that we were very interested in from the perspective of labor. Mm. We've always felt that tennis should have a collective agreement. We were a little bit skeptical when Novak came up because we were wondering if this was just going to be an ATP thing or if they had any interest in working with the WTA, how the ATP and Djokovic would, for lack of a better word, bring along women in the discussion. Mm. And we're still we're still skeptical. We're, and that, we're still wondering. That hasn't been resolved. No. Oh, Tennis Sandgren feels like so many years ago, but in January, we got our first bona fide alt-right star in tennis. I am flummoxed that this was only Mm -hmm. 10 months ago. How much has happened in tennis in 2018? It utterly dominated the news cycle during the Australian Open because Sandgren had that breakout tournament and he was forced to account for his retweets, his airing of his somewhat alarming opinions Mm -hmm. on Twitter and uh, their opinions that have become less alarming in the past two years because they've been fairly mainstreamed. But at the time when we knew about them, way back when, thinking that he would never become relevant, (laughs) it was was alarming for us. Mm -hmm. And then do you remember watching his Twitter feed disappear in real time? (laughs) It was one of the most absurd things of 2018 you hit refresh and like 50 tweets are gone right but it was like systematic it was mid-tournament as he's getting deeper into the event he's hired this service (laughs) be it a bot or something to just delete his tweets and they they just keep going and likes yeah delete likes too you could just delete your whole account the darko catfish happened in 2018 oh my god darko gurnkaroff the 
on the other side of the spectrum, the savior of woke tennis was exposed by Ben Rothenberg as a fraud. Woke Bay. <laughs> Darko is he is still out here. There, it's still mysterious. Like Darko Gurncroft is a real person, but is the person tweeting Darko? And we still don't really know what he looks like. Do we? Well, apparently some of the photos are him. Oh. Some of them are not. Some of the, the parts of the story are a little bit sketchy. A lot of his tweets are clearly stolen, like jokes that have been recycled and stuff. I still follow him. I'm not trying to get blocked because I need to be up on the Darko scoop. Oh, my God. Donald Young and Ryan Harrison had their dust up at the New York Open. Oh, my Open. God. And that that really killed the rest of the season for both of them. Yeah. They didn't really do much. Ryan was ranked, I think, in the 30s at the time, like 30s or low 40s. He was having a pretty good run. And you haven't heard much from him since. Young is another one who has gotten quite a bad reputation among volunteers and ball kids and stuff. So it was just ugliness all around. Rest in peace, Davis Cup. That's sad that that's just buried in all these controversies. But Gerard Piquet welcomed himself into tennis and changed Davis Cup forever. Croatia won the final version of Davis Cup. And now we have this fun, super tennis party at the end of the year. Is it? Well, that's what they're calling it. They just want Davis Cup to be fun. We've we've talked a lot about Davis Cup over mm-hmm. the course of the year. That'll just be a little recap moment there you know we're just going to mention it we're not going (laughs) to delve into it one of the uh not so serious moments of the year that turned out to be very serious for some folks and is something that they'll be looking out for in 2019 is roger federer in uniqlo he left nike in 2018 people were upset people were mad sad the whole gamut of emotions i like uniqlo a lot Federer has chosen the, a very kind of conservative palette for his Uniqlo kits. Unlike Kenishikori. Yes. But he is making serious money from them. Mohamed Layani and Nick Kyrgios at the U.S. Open. <laughs> we can talk about this later because it factors into one of our categories, okay. our award categories. The routine abuse and harassment of ball kids and other volunteers on the court is something that we would like to keep an eye on moving forward. But it has exposed some of our and y'all's favorite players, unfortunately. And it's something that, what, Tennis Channel or ATP finds amusing, apparently. Uh, What was that tweet going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this thing that Tennis Channel is doing about bad behavior on court, first of all, all the players are male. So it's, like, totally excusable when they're men. Boys will be boys. This is just how guys are. One of the clips they keep showing is Nell Bandian kicking that wood thing and injuring a lines person, sending him to the hospital. He was bleeding on the court. So that apparently is amusing. I don't I can't wait to hear the think pieces, the round tables, the op-eds from Martina Navratilova and Emily Moresmo about this, but I will hold my breath. I'll wait. Oh lord. Mhm. You had nothing you wanted to say about Martina? No. Having to do with that whole gimbal stop thing? Uh, no. Are you trying to get me in trouble because I admire and respect Martina so much? I find this disappointing, and that's where I'll leave it. The Saudi saga is pretty moot at this point. Rafa saved everybody from a whole world of hurt because he said, I'm getting surgery, it's over. Period. As we said before in the moment, he still scores no brownie points. No. Oh my god. 
talk about like a metaphor for his total avoidance of political controversy. Surgery. He will resort to surgery to avoid controversy. Comebacks and retirements on the ATP tour. Quite a few men have bid adieu to tennis in 2018. Mikhail Yuzhny, the colonel, he's retired. Max Mirny, who's been playing forever, mm-hmm. a double specialist for the last uh, few years, he's called it quits. Julian Benito retires without having won a title. Very sad. And I do not mean that. And retires in a flourish of trashing Roger Federer on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do feel bad that he was never I able do. to, yeah. to uh, win a title because one of the uh, OG tennis Twitter hashtags is... Benito title watch? Yes. You know, shit mm. Chrissy says, Benito title yeah. watch. And uh, it's not it's not nice for him to have had to have lived through that. Sam Gross, he retired earlier in the year. Tommy Haas. Marinko Matosevic had not heard about him in a while. Didn't need to hear about him for a while. I'm sorry that I'm mentioning him to you right now. Last time I saw him, he was in Toronto and he was not wearing any underwear. No. And his shorts are very low. That's what I remember about And him. one would think that that would be something you'd ask for, but in his in his case, it was not. <laughs> Florian Meyer, he's... I want to say he's gone. I keep... <laughs> yeah, keep none of these the people way. are dead. No. He has retired as well. Jürgen Meltzer. Gilles Mueller has retired, as has Daniel Nestor. Daniel Nestor, the Serbian-Canadian superstar in doubles. He is absolutely beloved in Canada. He retired at 43. As for folks who've made quite a comeback in 2018, Pablo Andujar, he started the year ranked 1,690. I did not know that there was a ranking that they high. They do go up that high. He's now ranked number 82. He won Marrakesh, as well as three challengers. Ernest Gulbis, Stockholm runner-up to Tsitsipas. He beats Zverev at Wimbledon and makes the round of 16. He is up to, I believe, number 90 or somewhere in that mm. vicinity. Surprise, bitch. Matches of the year. You have a little notation here. I can't remember matches. Why? <laughs> tennis is hard. It There are so many points, so many metrics in tennis that I find it really difficult to remember kind of the turning points of matches. As with the WTA where Simona Halep was kind of the, the through line with a lot of these best of matches, so too was there one dude on the ATP who featured a lot in these best of matches and it was Rafa Nadal there was the Nole Rafa match at Wimbledon the semi-final and while maybe that wasn't the best match in terms of quality of tennis it was the match that had at the time and absolutely looking back the most stakes yes because that could have absolutely changed the course of the year for both men and if you think about it Rafa reaching the Wimbledon final and possibly winning another title could have changed the course of history. Rewriting sort of this surface for him because he's been so useless for years on grass. Had he won, almost certainly he would have finished the year number one. Djokovic would have won less slam. Rafa would have had the Euro Channel slam double Mm -hmm. for the third time in his career. At the age of, what, 32? Him even making the semis of Wimbledon this year was a remarkable achievement. After having beaten Del Potro in the, in the quarterfinals in that epic match, it wasn't him just playing rollovers to get to this point. He mm-hmm. had an exceptional tournament 
pushed Djokovic to five sets deep in the fifth set. I believe it was eight, six he eventually lost, had his chances at the end of that fifth set. And had he been able to take them, man, things could have looked so different. At the very least in the rankings at the end of the year. There was Rafa and Hachanov at the US Open. I want to give another big up to Karen Hachanov because the majority of his losses in 2018 came to big name players. Every last one of them at the slams came to really top players. Losing to Zverev, losing to Nadal twice, and losing to Djokovic, I believe. And if you look at his lesser events, that was a commonality Mm. as well. And so you then get the picture that not only is he pushing these guys and winning some of those matches, but he's not really flaming out on a week-to-week basis or going through lulls and losing matches he shouldn't lose, which bodes well for him. Mm -hmm. There was a Chilich-Diminar match at the US Open that you talked about. I just said the Nadal-Delpo quarterfinal. Imagine Nadal playing Delpo and then Djokovic back-to-back in those two high-quality matches on grass. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Andy Murray and Marius Kopel in DC, that round of 16 match that went into the wee hours of the morning that had Andy Murray weeping at the end of it. The Delpo-Fed match in Indian Wells that you say is overrated. (laughs) And then again, Nadal team at the US Open, the quarterfinal where he rallies from being down a bagel in the first set. Mm -hmm. Do any of those... Do they ring a bell? Do they ring a bell? Yes, they sure do. And I would add Federer Chorich semifinals at Indian Wells to my list. Okay. It's now time for me to take a quiz. Yes, your quiz. All right. Did you study for your quiz? I prepared for the episode. (laughs) That that should be good enough. All right. So we have nine questions. Okay. The first, which doubles player won the most titles in 2018? Jack Sock. Oh, okay. (laughs) Do you know how many he won? Six. Did you look at this? (laughs) I did not look at this. All right. Number two, name three first-time titleists on the ATP Tour this year. Stefano Tsitsipas, Francis Tiafo. I mentioned that earlier in the in the episode, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna go with Basilashvili. Okay, is that correct? I definitely should have asked for more. Was Medvedev one of them? Yes, there were actually there were thirteen altogether, oh. including Mirza Bazic, Karbayes Baena, Kyle Edmund, Berrettini, Cecchinato, Tara Daniel, Fuchovic, Misha Zverev, and say my name, bitch, Nishioka. <laughs> Well done. That's two in a row. All right, number three. That's where it will end. (laughs) Who am I? I started the year in the Newport Beach Challenger, and I finished the year with three finals appearances. That's it? That's all I get? That's all you get. Started the year at the Newport Challenger. Uh, Kenny Shikori. Yes. Number four. Rafa Nadal scored three... Las undecimas, or los undecimos. Is it masculine or feminine? I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, scored 11 titles Mm -hmm. three times this year. Federer is not far behind. Where can he score his first der zehnte, or tenth? Basel? Or? Oh, there's another one. Um, Rotterdam? No. (laughs) Uh, Federer, to win a title for the 11th time? Mm -hmm. No, 10th, the 10th. He's done nine at another event? Yes, at two events. At two events. How? Yes. Okay. Jerry Weber. Okay, I made these too easy. 
<laughs> like I didn't, I wasn't trying to be tough, you know? <laughs> I appreciate it. Anyway, number five. Can you name three men who have been ranked number one in doubles this year? Uh, Marak, Brian, Mike. It's Mike, right? It's Mike. <laughs> and, oh, uh, Mate, Pavic. Okay, you got two out of three. There were four four number one doubles players this year. Mm-hmm. Mike Bryan, Mate Pavic, Lukas Kubot, and Marcelo Melo. Okay. All right, not bad, not bad. Two out of three. <laughs> number six, the U.S. has 11 players ranked in the top 100. Which are the next two countries with the most players in the top 200? The top 200? Sorry, 100. Top 100, France and Spain. Yes. Okay, this is way too easy. (laughs) Who are the top ranked players from each country? United States, Spain, France. United States, Spain, and France. Spain, Nadal. Yeah. France. Um... France. I'm gonna come back to that one. In the United States of America, that is John Isner. Mm-hmm. And in France, huh, is it still Puy? Who is it? I feel like there's somebody I'm missing. I'm just gonna. Mm, I'm gonna go with Puy. Very close. The last one is Gasquet. Oh. Is currently the number one in France. It's not going too well for Frenchmen, is it? <laughs> number seven. Which teams received the 2019 Davis Cup wildcards? Oh, Great Britain mm-hmm. and Argentina. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> um, this one is, well, we'll see if it's harder. Please name four of the five ace leaders on the ATP tour. On the ATP Tour aces, I'm going to... Well, Four out of the top five. Okay, Karlovich has to be one. Or did he not play enough? Do, you, uh, do I not get a response or just have no, to tell you? No, you just have to guess. Just tell you. So I need four of the five? Yeah. I'm going to go with Karlovich. I'm going to go with Shapovalov. I'm going to go with... Even though he had a bad serving year the second half of the year... Federer has to be up there, right? Or did he not play enough? I'm going to go with Federer. That's three. And I need one more. Del Potro. You went 0 for 4. Serious? Yeah. <laughs> I have to say you missed a few obvious ones. Oh, that's so dumb. Um, okay, fine. Okay. Isner, Anderson, Query, and I don't know. Okay, fine. Isner and Anderson are one and two. Followed by Raonic, Kyrgios, and Hachanov. Oh. Shapovalov has uh, aces, but he is also the double fault leader. Did oh. you know that? I did not. Yeah. Number nine. This is the final question. Oh, I thought that was the last one. No. Name a player who won singles titles on three different continents who is not Novak Djokovic. Three different continents? Yes. Lord. Non-Djokovic. There are not that many players who won even three titles this year. Right. Which should be a good clue. So there's... I'm going to go with Hachanov. No. Incorrect. Oh. You want to take another stab at it? Another stab? 
We're talking about singles titles? Yes. I'm just all tired out in my head right now. I'm Federer? Nope. I'll tell you. There are, there are only two, aside from Djokovic. Fognini won oh. a title in Sweden, in Mexico, and in Brazil. Hmm. And Medvedev won in Australia, North Carolina, and Japan. Okay. That was really good, though. Um, Ari, you got like an 80-ish, which is pretty good. I'll take it. Yeah. You're universally much better at these quizzes than I am. And we're kind of even. Yeah, you got like 82 and I got like 80. So Some of these I, I will thought, take it. I thought they were going to stump you and I'm sort of annoyed, but well done. They were easy questions. Oh, a okay. lot of them. <laughs> you were very kind to me. <laughs> and, All right. and I'll take it. I appreciate it. We're going to finish the episode with our TBS Moments Awards, starting with our funniest moment of the year. These are some that we solicited uh, votes from folks on the BodyServe Twitter account. For funniest moment, Nishioka, remember my name. It's not Nishikori. <laughs> Man, you better shut your fuck up, okay? Daniel Medvedev. Versus Stefano Tsitsipas. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Shaparov. <laughs> That was a big hit. That was a, the resounding winner. Yeah. Right? My submission was, sorry, men are just aren't funny. It's it's a sad, sad truth that men just aren't funny. Listen, I, to this day, tell people that they better shut their fuck up. <laughs> and Medvedev gifted that to me in 2018, and I'm <laughs> thankful. So that was what I voted for. Though I do absolutely get the Shaparov one, yeah. because that was hilarious. I watched it on loop for like five days. One of my favorite moments was uh, Maria Chichak told Dominic team, you are one minute late to get on court. Please go see the referee after this match in Australia. <laughs> it, oh, my God. Dominic going to the principal's office. WTF moment. Nick Curios and his on-camera jerk-off with the water bottle. <laughs> that was, sorry, that was my submission. <laughs> <laughs> that was what you voted for or your nomination? I nominated it. Okay. Complete with the money shot. It uh, was... Yeah. It and, the, and the British commentator saying, what a great time to start our Amazon Prime UK coverage. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things conspired. Federer losing to Millman in a US Open sweat fest. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot more exciting than it was. Coming after the Kyrgios situation. Yeah. Mohamed Leani has a kiki with Nick Kyrgios doing, during the changeover. At the U.S. Open, mm -hmm. portended some insane umpire-related things that would happen later in the tournament. Lord, the U.S. Open was wild. It was terrible. Rest in peace, Davis Cup. The winner... With 54% is the Leani Kyrgios kiki. I mean, folks were just not impressed. <laughs> Wildest off-court story. Boris Becker's diplomatic immunity to evade <laughs> the taxman. Bankruptcy law in the UK. He was an international attaché to Central African Republic. Mm -hmm. He has since withdrawn that defense. Bor Can I just say, though, Boris's social media profile is amazing. Like, fascinating. Because he will take you through every piece of the saga. Federer switching to Uniqlo. Tomasz Bellucci's bespoke vitamins. 
and Darko's Catfish. Those are your wildest off-court story nominations. Mind you, these are not meant to be comprehensive, and a lot of these nominations could fit into other categories. We're just having a little bit of fun to try and get all the stories into the show. But in this particular one, I voted for the Boris's diplomatic immunity thing because (laughs) it sustained me. It was hilarious. (laughs) But the overwhelming winner with 48% was a Darko catfish. I wanted to name this category the biggest dick moment. Mm-hmm. You thought that that was a, a li- bit too much. A little crass. Didn't want it to be confused with BDE having a positive connotation. Do I need to define what that means? Big dick energy. Right. Because this is quite the opposite. <laughs> These are men, and it's a in parentheses non-gimmel stop, because he got a whole, what, 25 minutes on this episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> These are men who had moments that were not their best look. It was kind of dickish. Really. Uh, Harrison versus Hanfman in Brisbane. During which Ryan Harrison said, you effing German piece of effing shit, F you, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it was yeah. classy. But but we're, we're being told by the same people who support Justin Gimbelstab that Harrison has gotten so, so much better. It's he's been... getting, he's, it's called growth. Have you noticed <laughs> the improvement? <laughs> Well, I haven't seen him in about nine months, so no, I haven't. I mean, it's hard to get a full grasp when he's not on court that much because he's losing, you know? Girl. Supervisor! Supervisor! <laughs> Jared Donaldson calling for the manager at Target. He will won this category by quite a bit. Grigor Dimitrov versus Pablo Carreño. I sort of forgot about this. We covered it on the show, and I really couldn't remember what it was about. But it was an on-court thing. Carreño returned a shot. There was some confusion. Grigor thought, you you gave up on the point. You need to give me this point, concede it. And he said something about, as a man, you know, I have no respect for what you did. I'll remember this in the future. So to be clear, Dimitrov hit a serve that was uh, thought to be out, right? Right. And Carreño hit the ball back. Dimitrov alleged that he hit it back with so little effort that it indicated he was stopping the point, mm-hmm. like as if to challenge it. But he wasn't. Pablo said, you know, I was just playing the point. And Dimitrov, instead of just hitting the ball into the open court because he had advanced the net by that point, took a big old swing and the ball went well long, <laughs> point to Carreño. And Grigor was not having it. I mean, at that point, he was going through some things mm-hmm. within his season, again, for the umpteenth time. <laughs> so, like, he was not having it. But this whole as-a-man business, that's like the perfect non-starter for us. Right. Like, and he'll not, remember this. Do he not said. step to us with this as-a-man, be-a-man, man-up bullshit. Like, learn mm-hmm. better ways to be men. Yeah. Level up. <laughs> and then there's the Fernando versus Thanasi duel in Miami. Oh my god, this was so good and bad. Fernando was complaining about somebody in the stands talking when he was playing and everything and Thanasi says that's my fucking dad mate and it turns out it was not his dad well according to Fernando he tweeted later on just so you all know that was not Thanasi's dad (laughs) you are not the father oh my god there's so many Mori jokes wrapped up in that and then of course Kyrgios chimes in with Fernando is the saltiest dude and it turns out Fernando is kind of the saltiest dude. 
Then, I mean, he had a dust-up with Andrew Murray, of all people, who was really one of the easiest guys to get along with out there. Andy accused him of receiving coaching during a timeout. What did you vote for in this? Oh, I voted for Harrison because it was so egregious. Mm-hmm. But, As did I. But our, our voters were really turned off by the supervisor thing, and I definitely can't blame you for that. Feel-good moment of the year. Trungaliti drives overnight with Mama and Grandma to play Roland Garros. Novak's Wimbledon win. Fabian, our listener, corrected us and said, well, for me, the Golden Masters situation yes. was more feel-good than Which I like Wimbledon to call win, the Master Blaster. Which I have corrected you that there's only one Master Blaster, and that's Viv Richards. I... Formerly of the West Indies. Okay, okay. If we're going to have historical accuracy with cricket, our That's monikers. a cricket reference. Yes. Uh, but still, it's Novak Wimbledon win here. ATP players, this was your nomination. Yes. The ATP players meet Queen Olympia. I liked the ATP guys sort of lining up to give their laurels to Olympia. <laughs> Novak had a super cute picture with her. Rafa posed with her. It was like they were waiting to meet the, Heir the, birth, yeah. the birth of the new queen. The next in line. And then finally, Murray's emotions in Washington, D.C., which is what I voted for. Which was so just so fulfilling to see a guy, especially a man, expose himself that way to weep on court, to show how much this sport means to him, what he's been through. As a man. (laughs) This is the correct way to use as a man. Cry all you want or need to, which is really at the core of it, right? Mm-hmm. Express what you need to express. I have to say, I did actually vote for Trunjaliti in this category just because he was driving with mom and grandma. It was really cute. I like how you just casually corrected my pronunciation oh. there without <laughs> making it a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you made it a thing. I voted for Mari. And in our you did that moment, we have Tsitsipas beating Jumhur, Team, Djokovic, Zverev, and Anderson in Toronto before losing to Rafa Nadal. Then we have Hachanov beating Nole teams Zverev Isner to win Paris, four top 10 players. Delpo beating Federer to win his first Masters title. Djokovic's comeback. And Rafa Nadal winning 50 consecutive sets on clay. And that's not even to mention Zverev's win at the World Tour Finals. We didn't actually put this this category up for a vote, but what would you pick out of, out of those? I would give that squarely to Rafa and Clay. Hmm. I'm going to, in the in the interest of balance, I'm going to say that you did that moment of the year was the Djokovic comeback because it was improbable, it was dramatic, and dominating. See, I totally disagree. It was entirely expected. <laughs> it's not to be taken for granted because it's very difficult. Right. But we, I don't think we ever on this show spelled gloom and doom no, for Nole's no, career. No, 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 no. And we were not surprised by it. But it's, think, still, it's still like, you did that. Yeah, and it's remarkable. But 50 consecutive sets on one surface, as we know, hasn't been done since McEnroe mm-hmm. in the early 80s. Not everybody has that. Not everybody has it. And everybody seems to take it for granted Rafa's dominance on clay. And even us on this show, we didn't really talk about it in the in the recap. Mm-hmm. You know, You're what, right. what he's done on clay still, because this is what, 15 years into his career as a top athlete, he's still doing that on clay. 
So mm-hmm. he gets my vote. Yeah, it's very much like Mariah's skills as a songwriter. Very underrated. Overlooked. She uh, wrote 17 number ones. She's got 18. Could and have she's na- about to have 19. Could bitch. have 19 in a couple about weeks. About Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we are at the end of season four of The Body Serve. We cannot thank you enough for all the support that y'all have bestowed upon us. Those of you who've been here from the jump, those of you who are new to the show just this year, we welcome you. We appreciate you. We thank you for listening, interacting with us, being the driving force for us to continue. Mm -hmm. We would not still be out here if we didn't receive support from y'all. So thank you so much. On that note, if you are inclined to give more support, we are always up for iTunes reviews and whichever platform you find us on. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. One final time for the year. Two L's, two T's. (laughs) The show is at The Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Have a safe, happy holiday season. Till next year. Thank you. Thank you very much.